Welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena, and today our guest founded an app offering one-to-one therapy, counseling, and career coaching sessions after suffering depression due to an undiagnosed health issue. MindUp now services over 50,000 employees from global brands, including Savills, Dentons, CBC, The Prince's Trust, and Avast. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episodes. We'd love to hear your feedback. Email questions at businessleader.co.uk to get in touch. And now it's time to welcome Joel Goodrow to the podcast. Welcome, Joel. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Hi, Serena. Really good to meet you. Yeah, and uh, pleasure to be here. You've been very open about your struggle with mental health and how this has motivated you to start your app, Mind Up. What was your experience and how did it lead you to this point? At first, I think it was quite hard for me to share it um, because it was quite, um, you know, personal to myself. But as I did start Mind Up and after the first sort of few months, I did share it openly, actually, in webinars to our employees and and users and lots of other things. And it all started, actually, because I had a physical illness back in November 2018. And that physical illness was left undiagnosed for a period of eight months. And I was going around in the NHS, going around in circles, seeing lots of doctors, and no one could figure it out, none of the specialists. And during that period, my quality of life decreased uh, quite significantly. So then it caused me to have depression because I couldn't live a normal life in that time. And it was the first time I'd actually ever had depression that lasted just more than a few days. And this lasted, you know, several months. So it really started to impact just my whole life in general, really. Anyway, I did reach out to um, several people in my organization that I was working in, and I was working in a big global corporate. So I definitely thought that they could support my mental health and they'd have lots of things in place, but unfortunately they couldn't. And after trying to um, trying to seek support internally, I was signposted to lots of different places. And I found out if I went through lots of these barriers, there'd be counseling on offer. But then there was a long wait time to actually receive the counselling and I actually needed it quite immediately. So I actually then self-funded counselling because I thought that would be the solution if my company were offering it. But anyway, I came out of the counselling sessions and even the counsellor, after hearing my feedback, said, I think you need to look at other forms of mental health solution because it sounds like counselling isn't for you at this time. What you're describing isn't what counselling is. So I was left quite actually lost about not knowing what to do. And after weeks of research online, I actually found it was actually life coaching and mindfulness that I needed. So I had to go and go and find a practitioner who could deliver those things and who would suit me and my style. So I did manage to find a guy called Jermaine Harris, and he's the one that totally saved and changed the whole of my life around. And it was from that moment onwards that I then set out on a mission to do two things once I was much better and saw the power of finding the right solution. And that was show the world there's no single solution to mental health. You've got to find what's right for you at that point in your life. But then also change the way organizations are doing things by making it really seamless for you to connect with not only the right person, but the right specialism for you at that point that you need. You mentioned there the importance of really realizing that mental health isn't a one-size-fits-all type of situation, that actually mental health is really nuanced and very individual. How does this transcend to the way that organizations can structure themselves to really acknowledge this aspect of mental health? So I think it's really important that organizations have more holistic view on mental health. So they have lots of different solutions across the whole spectrum. But then also, I think one of the big problems that we've seen 
And one of the things that we solve is they might have lots of different solutions kind of dotted around and lots of individual suppliers, but then employees look quite stuck and they don't know where to turn to because you know they haven't seen it advertised or they might have seen just a couple of them advertised. And that's where another sort of problem lies. And having sort of like an all-in-one platform where you can access the whole spectrum of mental health is really easy because then you have one place to kind of visit and then you can view the other solutions as well and just then see what's right for you. I just want to know a bit more about your background. So you have obviously started your own app, but how did you end up getting into this quite niche area of health tech? This is my first business, actually my third. So my first was actually a um, tech SaaS business. It was an online shift management software back in university. And I co-founded it with someone called Mitchell, who was a, a technology developer. So he, he was fantastic. I learned a lot from him. And it was one of these businesses, you know how they are in your first sort of couple, they're sort of epic failures, but great learnings, you know, for all of your future businesses and personal development as well. And then my second business was an online e-commerce business where you could create your own fruit tea online, one box minimum. So co-founded that with a couple of people from university. And that was a great learning experience. We're on O2's Think Big Startup Accelerator program, where we had some grant funding as well in the business. So it was a great sort of leap in terms of what I was used to. And I actually deferred even my graduate job for six months to try and run the business as well, which was a fantastic experience. And then to mind up, after working in the corporate, I actually joined another startup entrepreneur development program. And that was called um, New Entrepreneurs Foundation. And it was it was fantastic. It was 12 months and you had in-person workshops every couple of weeks with guest speakers, as well as being in a cohort of 40 entrepreneurs. And they taught you how to really take a business from an idea in a very lean way, utilizing as little money as possible, but to find product market fit as early as possible. And that's where I had mind up as an idea. And they helped me take it to you know actually validating the product market fit and actually seeing if my idea that I had based on my own experience was actually something that could help wider society as well. And after doing lots of tests and things, it it was, which was fantastic to see. That sort of training or accessing knowledge from quite an early stage is really important in being able to grow your business. But you mentioned how you've sort of experienced some failure as well with the initial businesses that you started. I imagine you learned loads of lessons too, which now you use in the scaling of MindUp. What kind of lessons did you learn from either failures or just challenges that you experienced with your first two businesses that now you carry on to your business with MindUp? I'm mentoring for entrepreneurs as well now, you know, to try and help others as well, you know, who've been sort of or on the journey that I've sort of coming on now. And it's really interesting because a lot of the learnings and failures that I had were a lot that I'm seeing quite commonly. And I think one of the main ones for me was build it and they will come. You know, you build a fantastic shiny app and you make lots of assumptions on what your users or uh, whatever your target market is uh, need. And then you sort of assume that everyone, once it's built, will, it's like the perfect product and everyone will just sort of flock to it and you have loads of sales and things. And we learned at NEF and even in my second business, I had advice to do tests and things, but we didn't do it. We made lots of assumptions where, say, at Fruity, which was the online tea company, easily, instead of purchasing thousands of pounds worth of stock and assuming customers or consumers would love those flavors and the idea, I was advised by someone um, to buy a few hundred pounds, test three flavors, and then see people like it, and then scale from there and introduce you know another two flavors and double down on the ones that are working. And that would have been the best way. And 
It's all about having those tests to see what exactly the users need rather than being so sort of emotionally attached to your idea. You might have to pivot your idea. And sometimes it might mean even fold your idea and sort of go into another sector that you might see from your test. But I think the key thing is, is really getting it out there, getting lots of feedback and data. And don't be afraid by the feedback and data. Really sort of lean into it and see exactly what it's telling you. And then you'll be able to make better data-driven decisions. I think that's a really important point to pick up on is, is that if you want to achieve the best outcome, you have to be susceptible to change and not let your ego get in the way, I suppose. Would you think that's fair to say? Yeah, I'd say that's probably partly it. And I also think that at the time, you just don't know what to do or best practice or the way to do it. And I think that's the key thing, because if I knew a lot of these learnings in my first or second business, you know, they might have been more successful. Well, I think the best way actually is learning from your failures. And I think you only sort of get to that after a certain period of time and maybe after a couple of businesses and and things or experiences like these entrepreneur development or startup accelerator programs. But yeah, I think it's a real combination of things. Not knowing could be ego, could could be lots of things all sort of either amalgamated together or in sort of isolation of of a couple of those. I do just want to come back to the issue that your app is solving, which is mental health, but also really understanding that mental health is very individual to every single person. Do you think that society's understanding of mental health is flawed in any way? Do you feel that stigma has come away from it? Or do you think that there is still a misunderstanding of exactly what mental health issues are? So I think we've come a long way, especially over the last few years, definitely. But I still do think that there is a stigma. And I think one of the main things that I've seen and that I've experienced personally is really the stigma of like mental health means mental problems. And you have to have a real problem to sort of seek support and seek solutions. And I even see this on sort of a daily basis, speaking to my friends or, you know, various colleagues or even seeing it on sales calls and things. And it's that sort of thing that I really want to sort of break because if you are going in sort of crisis or, you know, coming with big problems, you know, sometimes it's very late on, on that journey that you're on. And if you'd sort of gone, you know, much earlier, when you're say surviving or struggling rather than in crisis, you know, you could have easily stopped things spiraling out of control to even get to that crisis. And even myself, I've had some of the best life coaching or mindfulness sessions when I'm um, really thriving in my personal emotional journey. And um, it just keeps me there and pushes me harder, you know, and and that's the great thing. It doesn't have to be mental health and mental problems. You can be anywhere in the spectrum or continuum of your mental and emotional journey from excelling all the way to thriving and, and not even needing support all the way through to crisis. And there's no right or wrong answer of when you should seek support because you can have support at any time of your life and mental health solutions are for everyone as well. Do you think that there really needs to be this sort of double-edged approach to mental health, not just from a psychology perspective, but also from a kind of life coaching perspective? Yeah, definitely. Because I think people think of mental health as like mental ill health, but actually mental health just means your mental health. And it could be you are excelling or thriving. It doesn't have to mean you're that in crisis. And I think what has happened previously is a lot of the main solutions, especially with insurance, EAPs, and a lot of solutions that companies have implemented have been clinical-only solutions, like therapy, counselling, for instance. And that has meant that people have sort of turned to them thinking, oh, I don't need therapy, I'm not in crisis, or I don't need it at this time. And then that has sort of caused a lot of the problems that what we're seeing as well, especially within 
global organizations. And that's one thing I'm really passionate about because if you can start lifting the stigma and raising awareness into breaking that stigma about it doesn't have to be crisis or clinical, then we can start moving to a place where it's just normalized. And you don't have to think it's a weakness to seek, you know, life coaching or say if you've got, you know, phobia of something and you think, I just don't want to admit it and I don't want to make it a thing, you know, whereas it shouldn't be a stigma like that, where it should be okay to seek support and it's only going to improve you and reframing that negative thought about mental health or solutions to actually being a positive and how it can help. What kind of impact has the pandemic had on mental health? Have you seen a spike in organizations and businesses sort of coming to you to seek out your service? It's definitely made it from more a nice to have to now more of a must have. And we're seeing that in the stats and data as well, because there was recent research that has shown that we've gone from 55% of companies wanting to invest more in mental health to now 90%, which is fantastic. And we're seeing annual wellness budgets there was a study done by Fidelity recently, um, has now increased 20% year on year from 2020 to 2021 to 2022. So it's fantastic to see that, you know, and companies actually not only putting more money and budget behind it, but actually actively saying that they want to and will invest more in mental health solutions because there's so much data around how if you sort of um, improve employee well-being and have better employee outcomes, that's going to also give better business outcomes. And businesses are starting to see that now. And there's a lot more awareness with companies like Deloitte. They they do the annual mental health report. And it's really interesting to see you know, how there's still a lot of presenteeism, absenteeism, sickness, staff turnover, and how implementing mental health solutions can actually really help with that. There's no one in the organization that sort of can question that data as well. And they're sort of making it like a real business case to actually have mental health solutions, which at the end of the day is going to help employees and users and people all around the world. You mentioned a lot of really big organizations are doing a lot within the space of mental health. Do you think that they're paying lip service, some of them? Or do you feel like, does it even matter if that's the case? Because, you know, they're still doing something and and people are still benefiting from it. Yeah. So I think that's where we're at at the moment. So there are a lot of companies that are sort of ticking the box with, oh, we're doing something that that's fine. But then when they actually delve really deep into it, is are they doing enough for their employees? And that's one of the key things we're solving because they might have, you know, some of the global brands we work with, they've got an employee assistance program. They might have an insurance company that offer counseling or therapy. And they think that they've got everything sort of in place and they think they're helping their employees. But when they've actually used the service personally and seen either the barriers, long wait times, or even the range of solutions that they're offering, they then realize that this isn't enough for our employees and we do need to invest further. And I think this is where we're seeing a big boom in lots of mental health tech companies specifically coming up now because um, the demand is so great actually to augment those current solutions or traditional solutions that we've been used to and actually create you know, mass cultural change across these companies. Um, so I think it is fantastic that we are seeing that shift and I do think there is still a long way to go, but Every single year, it seems like we are making progress, which I think is great to see. Would you say that it being beneficial is actually something that can positively impact the inner workings of a business? So, I mean, it's not great to think about mental health in this kind of way, but can it impact productivity, for example, or impact team cohesion and things like that? 100%. So we just saw from the recent report from Deloitte, there's billions of costs to employers of, you know, poor mental health in terms of stress, absenteeism, sickness, staff turnover costs. And 
they actually calculated it as almost £1,900 as the average per employee per year as the cost of employers. And 100% that when you have an effective mental health solution, it can create fantastic outcomes. Like at MindUp, we've got over 95% of our users have either decreased stress or increased productivity, which really you know counteracts those outcomes of poor mental health. And when we've actually put the calculations from Deloitte onto our services, we've actually saved over £1,800 per employee per year, which is amazing. Instead of losing that amount, we're actually saving that amount for companies. And even Deloitte have actually stated that companies implementing a mental health solution on average have an ROI of about £5 for every £1 spent. And at MindUp, we're actually able to deliver on average about £6 for every £1 spent. So really shows you when you start augmenting even the usual services, you can create even better both employee outcomes, but then business outcomes as well. I would like to come back to how the pandemic specifically has changed the way that society thinks about mental health. Because people are a lot more aware of mental health in society, mental health is something that we think about and consider a lot more than we used to. Do you think that there actually has been an increase in mental health issues or we are, as a society, just more aware of these mental health issues and that's the reason why it maybe seems as though there has been an increase? I think it's a mixture of both, actually. Like Even if you look at the stats and data, we've seen from 2020 in February, March alone, there was a 30% increase in clinical anxiety. So there is a lot of data to suggest that there is you know, definitely more mental health issues because of the pandemic or during the pandemic specifically. But then also, like you're saying, the awareness might not have been there a couple of years ago as much as it is now as well. So I think it's definitely a combination. But I think that the main thing that the pandemic has, um, you know, really good thing to come out of the pandemic is that people have accepted live one-to-one video sessions in terms of for mental health consultations and sessions, which I think is fantastic because previously there was a lot of stigma around that and people wanted to do always in person. But then to actually see some of the world's best experts or the most fitting experts for yourself it can be quite difficult if they're based in America or other country or in Europe and you're not there and you might have to travel there to see some people. And it's great to actually see that. And there have actually been lots of studies now in recent years to actually validate that as well. We've seen studies actually prove that live one-to-one sessions are as impactful as uh, face-to-face sessions in terms of therapy. It's great that we're seeing it for all different types of the generation as well, from younger all the way through to older as well, utilizing the services and I think that's a great step, actually. You can do it when you like, wherever you like, at convenience. And that is only helping now to break the stigma and raise awareness even more. Back to your question as well. One of the points you raised about what happened during the pandemic in terms of mental health specifically. Obviously, during lockdown, it was very difficult. I would say even for myself, I was living in a small flat in London. I found it very difficult to actually not be depressed and not to feel down on certain days because I was, you know, stuck, not having much social interaction and being in London as well. It wasn't like being in the countryside where you could go for really nice walks around the field or the farms and things like that. So yeah, it was it was quite difficult. And I think not having social interaction, especially for people that lived alone during that time would be really difficult. If anything, that has now spurred a massive surge in mental health solutions to try and solve a lot of those problems that we had during the pandemic that not just were present during the pandemic, also post-pandemic as well. Yeah, definitely. And I guess if there is a silver lining to be found, it's that as a result of the pandemic, it's kind of catapulted awareness of mental health in a way that 
probably wouldn't have happened in this kind of trajectory if the pandemic hadn't happened. Another aspect of the pandemic was working from home and flexible working, which is still something that many organisations adhere to and is something that many organisations are still doing. Is there any negative impact of flexible working? I think uh, it's all about what works for the person and there's no one size fits all. I think that's what's really showed out of the pandemic now. And it's actually great to see a lot of companies now switching to hybrid working. So, you know, you can go into the office some days, you can also work flexibly or remotely. And I think it's all about striking the balance of what's right for the person, whether that's going to be one, two, three days in the office or and then the rest of the time at home. And I think we've come a long way. There are some companies that are still quite rigid in terms of being in the office, but if you look at the companies as a whole, even some of the ones that we've seen or some of the companies we work with in our portfolio, it's been fantastic to see that that approach being implemented. And I think it only helps person because we've also seen data around, you know, even if someone's in the office, how transparent are they going to be with their managers or their bosses? You know, there was a study by Deloitte that came out recently that showed that the number of C-suite and managers that knew about employees' mental health or knew people were struggling in the organization was actually quite low. So um, it's really interesting. And the fact that even though you might be at home, but you're on video calls with people and you can call people lots of different times, you're still building that relationship. And I think a combination of the both probably meets in the middle and is a great middle ground for companies and also employees as well, because then um, you've kind of got the best of both worlds, but you're making it work what's right for the individual as well. And you're probably going to increase efficiency and boost employees morale as well by empowering them a lot more. Um, seeing the best ways they like to work. What can a business leader do? So say they have their business and they really do want to cultivate an environment where everyone feels comfortable to speak about their mental health or at least reach out if they do have anything going on in their, their own life. What are some things that managers can do that maybe aren't necessarily having these mental health services available to everyone? Are there other ways managers can cultivate that environment? Definitely. I think um, sharing vulnerability is, is a great one. If you are struggling or if there's things that you're not good at or things you are learning, you know, share it with your team members to show them you're not some superhuman being that you are just a normal person and everyone has daily struggles and it's that sharing and knowledge and sharing that vulnerability i think that is really going to break awareness and actually make people feel more comfortable around you to think oh yeah you know my manager spoke about that the other week i might share this problem i had with them in a similar way where i had say a lot of stress or burnout in previous weeks and leading by example and openly sharing things is fantastic for example for myself as being a you know young ceo i actively you know share things on company meetings or in slack channels and things about great life coaching sessions that i have or mindfulness tools and techniques that i'm learning or things that i'm struggling with and things that i've done about it to seek support and then i find my colleagues uh, who are a lot of them are my friends now as well because we built such a great relationship actually come to me for advice and we share learnings and we share what we've done and it creates that open dialogue where you can discuss things and people feel comfortable to do so so you know, managers all the way from middle management all the way to C-suite is essential. And one of the things that we've done that has been sort of life-changing um, for myself and the business and also our corporate partners as well is that when we partner with a company, we'll generally get their senior leadership team to have used the service or, 
you know, interact with the service in certain ways. And we do an all staff webinar where employees um, can come and learn more about the service. And I actually openly share my mental health journey and story. And we also then get people that have used the platform if they're comfortable to actually then share their experience as well. And it's phenomenal, the outcomes that you can, you know, achieve. We had one investment bank achieving over a third of bookings coming from senior leadership and from director level one up. So it was incredible, you know, to see that in an environment where that didn't exist before. But just because of the open dialogue and seeing those people sharing a bit of vulnerability and leading by example, it actually created and caused mass cultural change. I think cultural change, a lot of it does start from the top as well. And especially when you're in, you know, global organizations as well, seeing people open up, especially your managers and line managers and people you look up to um, and inspired by in your company is only going to help, you know, and and that's um, a lot of the time where it all starts. You mentioned that, you know, your experience as a young entrepreneur and starting mind up at, at such a young age, as, as well as, you know, your previous businesses, you've had a lot of experience kind of in your 20s, getting businesses up off the ground. But do you think that there is anything specific about you being young as a business leader that really works to your advantage in any way? I think age is sometimes portrayed as, you know, being a bad thing sometimes, you know, and and the thing is, I think it's irrelevant because I think it's about the person that you are. And if you're an open person that can take feedback and loves to learn and lots of these things, I think age is then irrelevant because you could be older, you could be younger. And I know a lot of people, including myself, have had you know, a lot of imposter syndrome being a young CEO and young founder because you've got a team of people and some of them are double your age or more than double your age or even clients that you're speaking to. So there can be that aspect. But I think it's all about your ability and you know who you are and what you stand for is the key thing rather than age itself. Do you have any advice for any young entrepreneurs who might have a bit of imposter syndrome because they assume that because they might not be as old as other business leaders, you know, people make the presumption that they don't have the amount of experience and knowledge and that kind of thing? Yeah, definitely, because I've been through it myself. So the key thing that I did was actually work with a life and executive coach. And it was fantastic, actually, to work through them and actually reframe those thoughts So, you know, you could be having sort of negative thoughts about, you know, you're not good enough or you lack ability in that way, or these people don't like me. And those sort of thoughts creep in. And if you start reframing them from negative to a positive, and, you know, you work with a coach over a number of weeks to do so, it is phenomenal. You know, they make you really see the light in terms of that aspect and turning that around. And I find working with a coach has been amazing for not only imposter syndrome, for lots of other things that surround this, you know, because you can have, you know, post-meeting anxiety when you had that and it lasts several days. And then even mindfulness sort of comes into that aspect as well. And you start learning about sort of visualization, mindfulness, positive thinking, reframing, um, just to name a few. And um, when you start sort of building on those, you can start using them in different situations and building upon them and getting better using them. So yeah, I definitely recommend either getting a coach or reading into some of those to really help because I found them personally really beneficial. So a big part of a lot of these business leaders' uh, journeys will be trying to achieve funding and investment. And with MindUp, you've been backed financially by the likes of CBC and LSEG, as well as angel investors from Deutsche Bank and the London Stock Exchange Group. So tell me a bit about your journey and your experience with achieving funding like this. 
Yeah, I think a lot of time um, you're always tempted to raise a lot of money early without validating your product or service. And that's a key real learning point I had from lots of previous businesses. I um, I actually bootstrapped this company with £105. It was the only seed capital that went in the business. And I really tried to validate product market fit and the problem I'm trying to solve to see if other people were actually experiencing that problem that I had within a global organization. And it seemed like they were. And we got our first client, which was the office group. And we then used you know, money from that first client to then grow. And then we had sort of second and third clients and just sort of bootstrapped with those sort of internal funds. And then it got to the point where um, I had a mentor who was a managing director at Blackstone and as part of the NEF uh, startup program. And it was great. He actually said to me, I want to see four things from you and I will invest if I see those four things. And it was um, great founding team slash founder, feedback, traction and strong business model. So anyway, I set out to do those things as well. And um, when I achieved them, he then said, okay, I'll invest. So we raised a small amount of investment as well as some grant funding. And then we set out on a journey to then validate, use that money to then sort of validate our product and service even more and scale it from where it was. And we ended up doubling revenue in the space of six to eight months uh, post that investment. And we then raised another amount of money, which was triple the amount of the first time, which was great. And we did the same thing. We then doubled revenue eight months later and then raised again, double the amount we raised the previous time. And it was great because it meant that we weren't wasting money. You know, money was scarce and we were raising sort of smaller increment amounts rather than all at once. So we had to then also prove ourselves at different points in time. And it also meant that we built our product so much so that we were really fulfilling the deep root cause of the problem that we're trying to solve, but also really fulfilling customers and companies' needs as well in a really lean way. And it meant that very similar to Airbnb, they did everything manually in the beginning. We did that. And then now we've started to automate things as we go along. And it really gives you that sort of nimbleness to really fulfill those needs of your customers. And I think NEF, the startup program that I was on, it really taught you that. And, you know, in the first session we did, they said, build your product out of wire and plasticine, you know, as a first working version. So we were doing that kind of thing, you know, to really see that you don't have to spend a hundred thousand pounds on an app. Why don't you just build exact wireframes and then build your own uh, no code solution? You know, for instance, you know, there's lots of ways around it to get that first working version and then V2, V3, V4 after. But that was one of the main things I learned in terms of funding. Better to raise sort of smaller amounts rather than all at once and then validate that product market fit throughout. Then you also bring people on the journey with you. And all of our investors, most of them have doubled down at every single funding round, which has been great. And They've all seen the journey and been on that exciting journey with us. I want to hear a little bit about your own leadership style, but also the reason why you started MindUp was because you suffered your own mental health issues. You know, is that something that you still have to keep in check with? I imagine you have a pretty hectic, busy schedule. So how do you balance your own mental well-being with being the CEO of your own company? Yeah, I'd say it's, you know, it's very hard at certain points, you know, because you are running a high growth scale up company and there's lots of demands and it's your baby. And, you know, it's uh, it can be seen sometimes 24 seven. I have struggled with it in the past and I have reached burnout a lot of times, but I've always tried to seek solutions in terms of, you know, maintaining my own mental well-being, because if I'm not fit, healthy, physically and mentally, it's going to obviously impact our business and also delivering on our mission of making sure, you know, people aren't stuck within global organizations. And that's why I set up the company and why I'm so passionate. So it's it's really vital. And again, going back to being no stigma around mental health, that's where I dive in to see mindfulness coaches. 
or I did CBT therapy at one point or life or executive coaching. And that has been the key really help for me and seeking support, you know, and leaning into those people to really help me on those journeys because they're the experts and they've seen hundreds, if not thousands of cases of similar people to me. So it's great to actually lean on the experts at those points, but also mentoring as well. People that have been on the journey before, I've really lent on mentors that I've had and a lot of our mentors now investors in the company. And it's been phenomenal because if you're talking to them about burnout, they might have experienced that 10 times in the last two years. And they're then able to share with you lots of ideas that you can not just copy, but then actually make your own and process it and make it fit for you. You mentioned there as well, leadership. One of the great things I've learned about leadership and building great cultures to work for are uh, from our COO, actually, Paul Young. He was actually a client of ours at Avast. He was their global culture partner. And he actually, after seeing the impact of Mind Up being rolled out there across the world, came and joined us. And he's been phenomenal in teaching me about how to build high-performing cultures of high trust and reliability and how that's the opposite of obviously toxic cultures. And I'll just share with you some of the stuff that I'm really passionate about and we do every single day is, um, you know, if things go wrong in, in the business or, you know, someone does something that isn't aligned to your mission or the company, instead of ringing them up and telling them off that the best thing that I've learned from Paul is give them four-step feedback, either call them or um, send it in a Slack message or an email. And it's great. It puts everything objectively and it also gives them a forum and a safe environment to also hear what they think and then get shared ownership of the solution as well. And in terms of four-step feedback, how that's structured, you're first giving the context of what happened, then the impact and linking the impact to you know, your vision, mission, and values, and then a recommendation for next time. And then finally, asking them what they think. So there is that shared ownership. And then we do things like uh, retros. Uh, so say if there's something in a project that goes really well or goes really bad, or even if it's an average project, any sort of project, we generally have a retro after. We all come together. We round robin so everyone gets a voice and we go through what went well, what didn't go so well, what we can do better for next time, and then all have a shared solution that we then put action points to to improve for next time. And we're creating a great learning environment. And I think mind up in the early days, I was figuring out how to build a great culture and trying to learn myself and leaning on now Paul for that has just been phenomenal. And we've really accelerated in that journey and growth. I really like that idea of everybody having shared ownership over the different solutions and coming back to this idea of being vulnerable. It really opens up you to being open about the fact that you don't have all the answers all the time. If everybody is having their input into what the solutions are, it makes your life easier because, you know, you're not feeling the pressure of having to know all the answers all the time. But it also is positive because everybody in the team feels like they have a sense of ownership over something. And it's really good for kind of like that camaraderie as well amongst everybody. So I, I really like that idea. I think that can be really beneficial. Yeah, no, it's, it's really good because obviously our product is about there being no one size fits all and no one person is going to know everything. So I think it's great to lean on your wider team because you're going to have so many different ideas. Like one example was one of our sales team pitched to me as a practice last week. And some of the stuff he was doing was stuff that I've been working on and also taking learnings from him. And I, I even said to him, and I actually shared this on the company meeting, how fantastic it was that I actually learned a lot from that call uh, myself that I'm actually going to be putting into practice and also remembered stuff that I'd forgotten as well that I want to now re-engage. So it's fantastic. You can learn from 
lots of different people in your company, from outside your company, from wider society as well? Thanks, Joel. That is really good advice for our listeners. We have now come to the end of the podcast and we always finish our podcast with a segment called Answer the Internet. And this is where we scour the internet for the questions that the public needs the answers to. So this question is from Reddit and it's from a user called Dinosaurish Chicken. And they ask, how much does it cost to create an app? That is a real good question in terms of how long is a piece of string, you know, because it could cost anywhere from it being almost free if you're a developer or if you do it with no code as well and you're doing it yourself all the way through to hundreds of thousands. It's where you are on your journey. If you're a global corporate and you're developing an app, you might have the money to spend hundreds of thousands. If you're, say, just starting on your journey at the beginning of your entrepreneur journey, you could, say, build a first type working version for a few hundred pounds or several thousand pounds. And then your version two can be 10 or 20,000 and version three could be slightly more. And it just depends where you are on that journey of your entrepreneurship or business journey. And your story kind of lends itself to the idea that you don't need loads of money to start an app. As you mentioned, you you started with 105 pounds and, and now you've been able to scale it to what it is today. So yeah, definitely. And the second question we always ask everyone is because we are Business Leader Magazine, what makes a great business leader? I'd say someone who really cares about their mission of the company, but then also their culture of their employees as well. And I think a balance of both is fantastic because if you just focus on, say, you know, the mission of your company, but then forget about your employees, you know, you might have a toxic culture. So I think a balance of the two really makes a great leader. And as we mentioned before, sharing vulnerability, having an open forum around mental health and a two-way dialogue communication with all of your staff to raise awareness about issues, I think is great and a great culture and foundations to, you know, really build upon. To finish us off, do you have any final words for our audience? Yeah, I mean, I'd just say that I'm personally really excited to see what mental health is going to become over the next few years. And we've seen a transition from what it was just several years ago. We've seen a massive leap. So I'm really excited to what the future holds now in terms of, you know, people's well-being is definitely going to be boosted by the stigma reduction and things. And I think I'm really interested actually to hear more about gut health and mental health as well and how physical illness affects mental health is a big area I'm passionate about. So that's something I'm really going to be delving into over the next year or so as well, which I'm excited to explore.